From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Like a stretched-out panic attack is how Obed-Manuel describes witnessing his father's months-long battle with COVID-19. Obed, an editor here at CPR, took copious notes of his dad's decline. The doctor would call every single day. I would put my headphones in and take notes on my phone. At the end of my dad's life, I had what amounted to 30 pages worth of notes. Stepping back, he says they revealed the relentlessness of the virus, even as the family held out hope. More than 670,000 Americans have died of COVID. One of those stories today told partly through tacos, symbols, Obed says, of his parents' love. It's more love than you could possibly handle, and you still get it. (laughs) When your car needs too many costly repairs, or stops running, or it's just time for a new car, give the old one to CPR. It's so simple. Your car will be picked up at your convenience. When it sells, you'll get a tax receipt. The proceeds help make CPR the station you turn to for factual news and uplifting music. So let your old car make great radio happen. Get started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. COVID deaths in this country have surpassed 670,000, according to the CDC. And we're going to zoom in on one of those lives lost now, the story of Jose Manuel. He was the father of Obed Manuel, audience editor here at CPR News. Obed's originally from the Dallas area and just wrote about the death of his father in the magazine Texas Observer. The piece is titled On the Coronavirus, Loss, and My Mom's Tacos. And Obed, thank you for being with us. Yeah, Ryan, thanks so much. I love working with you and I I love the show. (laughs) Oh, that's... A nice thing to say. <laughs> Your father was a minister. How was that for you growing up to have a minister as a dad? You know, there's all sorts of added pressure. In church, you're like the model kid that like all the other families point to. And be like, why can't you be more like Obed or Carlos, my brother? All sorts of like pressure to be a leader in the church. And we helped him lead worship services and stuff. It pushed me out of my shell. So doing something like this interview, for example, or like TV spots where I used to work, like it made me more comfortable. And even though I'm kind of naturally pretty reserved and introverted, so. Was your father exacting? I I don't know. I think of ministers (laughs) as exacting, but maybe that's a stereotype. You know, you'd be surprised. My dad was actually pretty, I'm not going to say easygoing. That's definitely not how it was, but like there was definitely no pressure to A, follow directly in his footsteps the religion, spiritual situation, he kind of always told us, this is up to you, whether or not you want to follow through with this. But while you live in this house, you know, this is what we do. And that included prayers. At the table, before every meal, even now, didn't really matter, like whether, you know, it still feels weird a little bit to not pray before I eat. But (laughs) we did it before every big moment, job interview, or if I was going to have a meeting uh, as a freelancer, for example, my parents would always be like, okay, let, let's pray and see if this um, if this works out. What would those prayers sound like? What was the one over meals? The was one over the meals, you know, it depended on who was doing it. You know, it was either my dad, my brother, or me. 
you know, I had a very kind of copy paste type <laughs> version <laughs> of the prayer, which is actually in the essay mostly, you know, it starts with the dear and heavenly father, you know, we come to you in prayer, you lay out your demands to God <laughs> and then you, you know, standard out cue. Otherwise God doesn't hear it, you know, in your son, Jesus name we pray. Amen. Both of your parents contracted COVID-19 in late 2020. Mm -hmm. Your mom, Germina Estrada, Great. fared relatively well. Yeah, she was sick, I would say, probably for about a month. And yeah, it was middle of November. My dad called me. They had just gotten back from a clinic where they got like a quick, a rapid test, a COVID-19 test. And he called me and he was like, I don't want you to worry. Uh, they had told me a few days prior that they been feeling kind of rough and he said i don't want you to worry we got tested came back positive and that was like my biggest fear this entire time mostly at that point i was worried about my mom because she has some underlying conditions that you know we kept reading you know if you have heart condition diabetes etc these are the people who fare worst so this whole time last year we were mostly worried about my mom my dad very healthy guy apart from his weight and his age, he was relatively healthy. How interesting that when he called you, his first instinct was to take care of you. Don't worry, yeah. Obed. Yeah, that's just, that was kind of his instinct. I think it always was um, as a dad. That was just who he was. And his trajectory was very different from your mother's because your mother recovered. Mm -hmm. And what was the nature of your father's decline? You know, they both had similar symptoms in terms of like, coughing, kind of shortness of breath. One thing we did, my wife April and I did, was we bought little pulse oximeters that you put on your fingertips. My mom bought me one. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> you know, and it was a handy tool. I mean, we, we had my mom and my dad take their measurements basically from the day that we found out that they were sick. And basically three times a day, they were updating me and me and April, um, and we were writing it down. We were taking notes on how they were doing. My mom's levels were in the healthy range. Like above 90, I Above guess. 90. Uh -huh. um, my dad's day two were kind of in the high 80s, low 90s. So we were like, if we're still okay. We actually took him into the hospital two days before he was actually admitted. And that was like a late run, 10 p.m., um, middle of November. And he was there for a few hours. I mean, this was middle of massive lockdown, so we couldn't even go in with him. My dad didn't speak English, so basically everything had to be through some kind of interpreter at the hospital. And that first night that we took him, they said his, his oxygen levels are fine. We know he's having a hard time breathing, but it's not enough to admit him. You must have taken some comfort in that? To a degree, uh -huh. to a degree. I think back now, like I wonder what would have happened if they had admitted him. Oh. Um, but it's easy, It's really easy to kind of get caught up in the what ifs. So it was two days later that he was hospitalized? Yeah. You know, they were sending us time-stamped um, readings of like their oxygen levels. Uh, my mom was fine. My dad's kind of gradually kept dipping lower and lower. The hospital told us basically if it drops below 80, 85, bring him back in. My mom called me three, four in the morning. She said, your dad just came back from the restroom. 
and he effectively fainted onto the bed. And we told her, keep him awake, take his reading on the pulse oximeter, which I know wasn't like perfectly scientific, but it was a way to, to measure what was going on. And at that time, I know we were all so desperate for things that told us we were okay. Yeah. You know, so I yeah. get it. Yeah. And the reading we got that morning was like 45. It was, it was pretty low. So my wife and I jumped in the car, sped down. They lived about 20 minutes south of us. We rushed them to the hospital and same emergency room. They immediately put them in a wheelchair, hooked them up to oxygen. And they were like, okay, we're keeping them. And this was Parkland Hospital. Parkland Hospital in Dallas. Like, I think most famous for where JFK. JFK was treated. Was there's, treated. A, there's a bust there of JFK and like mm -hmm. a whole tribute to him, yeah. And your father was there, what, three months? Do I have that months. math right? Yeah, he was there, you know, from mid-November to the end of November. He was there for about two weeks conscious. And exactly on November 30th is when his doctor called us and told us, He's on full ventilator support. This is going to be easier if we intubate him, if we put him under and intubate him. And it happened that exact same day. So we we didn't get a chance to talk to him uh, after that day. We gave him a call. Um, I, I, I'm actually having a hard time remembering if we actually told him what was happening. Uh, I think he understood what was happening. Help us understand intubated because that's such a watershed yeah. in his care. Yeah. You know, the intubation, it was explained to us is he's basically put on sedatives effectively to relax his body, make him unconscious. The tubes would go into his throat, down into his lungs, and then he, those tubes would be connected to the ventilator. So the the ventilators, which we heard a lot of, like how much in use were they, what percentage, right? Last year was, was a big factor and still is. And he was put on that machine, which breathed for him for the rest of his life. Like what, another two months? Am I right about that? Uh, it was all of December, all of January, and he passed on February 27th. So it was basically all of February as well. One consistency I have heard in COVID stories is this kind of roller coaster of like good news followed by bad news, followed by slight hope, followed by despair, that a patient might make a moment's improvement mm -hmm. and then decline again. Mm -hmm. Was that a pattern that you noticed? Every day, pretty much. Every day, you know, for those first few weeks, it was like, he's stable, he's about where he was. There were glimpses of hope during those first, first month wasn't that bad. It was obviously we were terrified. One of the things that they ended up having to do, which you might've heard is the pruning where they, where they flipped them on their stomachs, mm -hmm. the patients so that it improves the oxygenation. So he was, they would do that constantly to him. Um, and to us, that was a marker of improvement when he could stay on his back and not have to. So I think a month and a half later, they told us, oh, he's he's able to stay on his back. So to us, that was like a big marker of, okay, that means he's holding on to his own. You know, he's, he's oxygenating okay. One thing that never kind of changed, though, was the fact that the, the ventilator support was just always really high. We would have a day where the doctor would say, we bumped it down a notch. 
But then the next day, okay, we're right back where we were. Hmm. Um, it strikes yeah. me that for this entire time, Obed, there's like this hypervigilance around the oxygen levels at home on the pulse ox. Yeah. Whether he's on his back or not. The right. level of oxygen from the ventilator. And it's like this weird, for me, it would be almost obsessively data-driven. Does that make sense? I, so that's one of the things that's, that's really interesting about this time period. The doctor would call every single day. And every time that they called, I would put my headphones in so I could go hands-free and take notes on my phone. At the end of my dad's life, I had what amounted to 30 pages worth of notes that I kind of meticulously took. And I had dates on them and I had timestamps. Once a journalist, always a journalist. Yeah, yeah. Because it was like, I need to hold on to these notes because like my mom's going to want to understand what's going on. My brother sometimes couldn't jump on the calls. So I would have to call him later on in the day and kind of recite what the doctor said Hmm. to us. So yeah, I mean, we came to learn about oxygenation levels, blood acidity levels, what the notes, I went back and reviewed them, you know, in those final weeks when we kind of started feeling a little bit iffy, more iffy than normal about the situation. And I went back and I reviewed them. I was like, dad's been like on a downward trajectory Mm. this whole time. Um, It was down and then stable, down and stable. And then the word stable is, is really, um, trivial in this sense like it's very questionable because you know your condition can be falling in a stable manner like you can take three steps back and then stay at that level you know for a good while yes it's stable is misleading because there's it's kind of imbued with false hope i think yeah yeah no the the word stable is definitely (laughs) i came to learn and understand that it's not uh you know it's not the hope that the word promises during this time you moved in with your mom or at least you were staying with yeah, her. Yeah, yeah, I would stay for a few days a week, yeah. I am curious if you were there to take care of her or you were there so she could take care of you. I think it was definitely more for her to take care of me. But in a sense, a big part of her identity, and I know that this is a very traditional way of thinking, but like a big part for her is taking care of people. Uh, as a mother, as a wife, she takes a lot of pride in that. And that's obviously not something that I'm ever going to like take away from her. Nobody should try to. Um, well, also, I think there's a very <laughs> specific role of being a minister's wife. Oh, yeah. No, my mom, um, she was the caretaker for a lot of families. You know, people would go to my dad for guidance, but they would also go to her for guidance as well. So she's not used to being alone, you know, especially during the pandemic. Like it was her and my dad for months and months and months. And so me going to stay with her, you know, a few days a week, you know, I was, I wasn't working at the time, so I didn't really have anything going on that was that important for me to be playing video games at my place all day. (laughs) So I went and I, I let her take care of me. And, and I think in a way it was kind of like, you know, I was taking care of her however I could. This became your full-time job essentially. 100%. Yeah. I, I look back on it now and I think if I hadn't left my job at the Dallas Morning News I, I don't know where I would be mental health wise. Mentally, my mental health would have suffered even more than I had already last year. So yeah, no, every day was waiting for a call from the hospital. At the normal time, we prayed that the call wouldn't come at a strange time in the day. That was one thing we always said. I, I, I told my mom and my brother, I was like, look, if something goes wrong, if something goes poorly, if he's doing you know worse a certain day, the call's not going to come in the middle of the day. It's going to come 
at two or three in the morning. And that's when we're going to know that something is really wrong. The title of this piece, once again, on the coronavirus loss and my mom's tacos. Tell me about your mom's tacos. They're the best in the world, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> Did you bring them today? Oh, you know, she's far away, but you know, someday, someday, hopefully she'll be up here. So I don't know if you know this about my family, Ryan. So my parents actually ran a small business uh, where they sold and delivered food pretty much every day. And the primary attraction was, was tacos. And she perfected, it sounds like. Her oh, yeah. taco game. Yeah, no, 100%. What's really funny though is that my grandma didn't actually teach my mom how to make these recipes that she has. She kind of picked it up here on her own out of need, um, you know, being self-employed, very attractive, <laughs> being able to pay for a home, pay for two college educations. I mean, you know, it, people ask me, is your mom's food good? And I say, well, put me through college. So it's pretty good. <laughs> and how present were the tacos as your father was in the hospital? You know, I think those days that I stayed with her, I knew my mom was going to make breakfast for me. And she knew that she was going to make breakfast for me because I was at home. It, it was kind of bittersweet, I'll admit. You know, she would ask me, what do you want? What, what kind of tacos do you want me to make? And she had ham and eggs. She had chorizo and eggs, potato and eggs. I had all of them, you know, throughout those few weeks. And, you know, it was just, the effort and kind of love that my mom put into cooking that food. Um, it's kind of unmatched, you know, a parent's love is, it's unlike anything in the world, mm -hmm. especially when you're fortunate to have parents who really care about you and, you know, effectively sacrificed everything that they had for you. And they still have more to give beyond that. And that's what my, um, that's what my mom's tacos kind of represent. I think it's that it's more love than you could possibly handle and you still get it. <laughs> There's also, and you write about this in the piece, a sadness that your dad isn't eating them with you. My dad loved my mom's tortillas. There was not a, not a day went by that he did not eat one of her tortillas. The way that my mom serves the food and the way that she served it those days that I was staying with her, we were kind of split up. You know, my dad was in the hospital. My brother was about an hour away uh, working. So we were kind of fractured at the time. But, you know, we had like this one symbol, this one unifying factor, which for decades has been my mom's cooking. Talk to me about your dad's final days to the extent that you're comfortable. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like I said, I think we were prepared to get the call at a awkward time of the day. It was... Sunday, I believe February 20th, it was late. I was, I was up, I was having a few beers. <laughs> I got in the habit of leaving my phone with max brightness, with top volume, no silencing notifications because I was fully aware that a call could come. And so mm -hmm. for those past three months, I had been sleeping with my phone basically as a possible just ticking time bomb. But yeah, I put my phone to charge. It was literally like 11.59. I laid down and then my phone lights up. And you know, it's like that, um, the marimba ringtone that we all have, or a lot of us have. Um, I kind of knew. Um, Did you recognize the number? Yeah. The hospital's phone number ends in zero, 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 four zeros. So I came to be very familiar with 
how these calls were going to come in. Um, it wasn't his usual doctor, um, which, you know, happens on the overnight shift. And they said, your dad is having a really hard time. So I got some other details from them. They said, come down, they'll let you in because it's off visitor hours and we'll put your name on the list. So just come in. Who do we need to put on the list? My mom, my brother, his wife, my aunt, my dad's sister, my wife, me. So we, you know, I call my mom, call my brother. You got to get down to the hospital now. They let us in. We go upstairs and we notice, you know, he's, he, his physical kind of look had changed for the past three months. We saw him age, which my dad at 64 had never really aged. Like he was obviously like an older, older man, but my dad's hair was black. He didn't really have a lot of gray in his hair. During those three months, his hair grayed. Um, His body really became a shell of, of who he was. Before COVID. Um, It's like one more mystery of this virus. Yeah. God. We asked him, or I asked if he was ready to go, like if this was it. And they said, we called you. You asked that of your father or of the the doctor? Of Of the the doctor. doctor. Okay. Yeah. Um, You know, is he ready to go? Is you called us? I assume that this is an emergency kind of situation. They said, he's looking really rough. So we wanted to make sure that if, if he was going to go, we wanted to make sure that you were here for it. Um, that he wasn't alone. And we spent that night, that Sunday into Monday morning into, at the hospital. His normal doctor came back on duty, walked us through. They said he seems to have stabilized. But we're going to keep a really close look on him. There's that word stable. There's that word. It, it popped up over and over and over. Um, we stayed there for a few more hours until like 9 a.m. Um, it was rough. Because, you know, they called us in the middle of the night and we were expecting, you know, not hoping obviously for him to pass, but like we were kind of expecting it. They told us he had stabilized. They told us you can go home. It's probably okay. And what ended up happening is we we spent that week talking to his doctor. We ended up having a meeting that week with his doctor's um, kind of supervisor who was kind of in charge of... Do we need to start talking about end-of-life care? And we'll pick up the final part of our story in the next half hour. My guest is CPR audience editor Obed Manuel, who's sharing his family's pandemic story with us. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. Every September, the best of herding dogs descend on Meeker for one of the country's top sheepdog trials. With just whistles and hand signals, these experts round up sheep into groups, guide them through gates and into pens. Take in the sights and sounds of the Meeker Classic Sheepdog Championship Trials. Lots of pictures and the story are at CPR.org. In February, doctors informed Obed Manuel that his 64-year-old father, Jose, was near death. COVID-19 had ravaged his lungs. 
For months, Jose had been on a ventilator and in a medically induced coma. Obed, his son, is an editor here at CPR News and recently wrote about his family's experience in a piece for the Texas Observer titled On the Coronavirus, Loss, and My Mom's Tacos. Before the break, Obed was telling us that doctors began preparing the family for the end. You know, they kind of walked us through what that would look like. They said, we'll call you again, obviously, if things are going wrong, if it looks like he's having another rough period. And then that Saturday... It was the middle of the day. My wife and I were like at an estate sale and we got home a few minutes and then that's when I got a call. And it was, it was the supervisor this time, the supervising doctor. The caller ID was zero, 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 zero. Yeah. Zero, 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 zero. Um, she said, you know, the signs that we were looking for, he's telling us that he's ready to go. You know, that, that's a moment that I'm never going to forget. And, you know, they let us in. And we were there for three, four hours. We were able to, you know, say our, goodbye, our goodbyes individually. Um, Could you touch him? Could you touch his hand? Yeah. Or? Okay. Yeah. You know, my mom kissed him. I know that that's the last day that he, he was alive. But, you know, the, the last time I ever actually, you know, said anything to him was back in November. Months prior. Months. And, um, you know, it was like a stretched out way of having to watch him die. I don't think we want that for anyone, including ourselves, you know. No, I, Probably you know, wrong. I've, I've said this to my wife in private. It's like, I wouldn't wish this on like my worst enemy and I don't really have one, but <laughs> in this day and age, I think it's the people who are telling you that this isn't real. Um, because I've seen, it. you know, all, all of the talk that you see online, that you see politicians, that you see everybody say, you know, all these people who want you to, to think that this isn't a real thing. Like as a minister's son, I'm testifying to you that this is real. Like, this is a real thing. And, you know, at this point, to not protect yourself from it is to be okay with putting your family through what my family went through. Hmm. That's really what you're saying. When you don't want to get vaccinated, when you want to be careless and inconsiderate of other people, of other human beings, that means that you're okay with this happening to you and your family and other people's families. That's just not acceptable. We all have to share this space. We all have to share this world. And we have a chance right now to really be considerate and really kind of practice the, regardless of the kind of religious implication, like, you know, love one another. This is the perfect time for it. Were you there when he actually passed? We were, because basically the way that it worked is they shut off the respirator Oh, so there, there was a decision to be made. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, we, we, you know, when you're taking somebody off of what if effectively life support, yeah. um, my mom was the decision maker. So she had to be the one to, to sign the paperwork and et cetera, to give the okay. They shut off the ventilator and they asked us if we wanted the tube removed, you know, this intubation removed. And we said, yeah, because it, we, we didn't want for him to 
to die that way, to die in a, you know, artificial kind of way, you know? So we were in the room just a few minutes after, a few seconds after they removed the tube and turned off the ventilator. And it didn't take more than a minute for the doctor who was kind of doing the, the last vital check basically to say, you know, he's no longer with us. That's how weak his lungs were. Yeah. There was just no yeah, um, breathing on his own. Basically his. throughout the time they kept telling us his lungs are really, really weak. His lungs are really stiff. And they just never got better because they took too hard of a hit. Was there peace then in the pronouncement of his death? Was there peace in that? I think so for me because of how the three months had been. Again, like it had been a just a prolonged kind of edge of your seat, you know. Yeah, what's the term you use in the piece? Oh, like a stretched out panic attack. Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, like every time that I heard my phone go off, didn't matter who it was, my brain just immediately just reignited full speed, rushing in every possible direction. Have you changed your ringtone? I did. I did. I'm so glad. No, I, I, could, I couldn't really do that anymore. Um, the marimba would have just been completely triggering. It, it still is. It's, it still is. Um, you know, just because I associate it with, obviously, those, those last two phone calls that we got about him. Obed, it was in this piece that you wrote for Texas Observer that I learned your dad didn't know you'd gotten the job at Colorado Public Radio. Yeah. I don't know why reading that as your colleague, it brought me particular sadness. It makes me very sad too. Um, when my dad went under, I was unemployed. He thought I, I mean, I was struggling. I mean, the, I left my job. I left my newspaper job at the Dallas Morning News because I was pretty burned out um, on top of the pandemic. I had been through a really successful but tough 2019 and I had just been kind of going full speed and then the pandemic hit and it was like hitting a wall and I was tired. So when I left my job, I know my dad was really worried about me. He was worried that I was going to give up my career. And for him, I don't think it was like, a, I worked this hard to put him through college situation. I think it was definitely like, a, that's what he always wanted to do. That's what Obed always wanted to do was, was be a journalist. And so it kind of hurts that, you know, he didn't get to know about this because uh, I'll be honest, like CPR, when when my, my boss reached out to me about this job, you know, it made me feel wanted. It made me feel like, hey, I'm a talented enough guy that people from another state are trying to get me to move from a place that I never thought I was going to move from. <laughs> and so it's very bittersweet that I never got to tell him about this job. I bring this up because there's a a religious and faith stripe in your family. Um, you never got to tell him on this plane that you'd gotten the job. Do you have some sense that he watches over you? Or, I mean, what, I don't know. What are your beliefs about the relationship now? You know, I, I'll i be honest. Um, I'm not as religiously affiliated as I, as I was when I was, uh, when I was younger and I was a kid. I told my wife this because, unfortunately, my wife also lost her mom a few years ago. Um, I tell my wife, like, they're looking over us. Um, for every, um, for every kind of big moment that we've had since he passed, 
before we drove up to Denver, you know, my wife is pregnant now. Um, before we walked into our confirmation appointment, you know, I, uh, I looked up and I was like, please be in there with us. So yeah, that's a, that's a long way of saying, I, I, I do believe that he, um, that he's with me, um, and that he's watching over, you know, the things that I'm up to. But it would have been nice to, to tell him that person. Before we go, you reveal one of your mother's culinary secrets in this piece for a Texas observer. It's the key to good beans. So before we go, what's the key to good beans? The key to good beans. The key to good beans is actually garlic. In, not in, lard. Not lard. Um, it's pretty popular to put, you know, animal lard in refried beans. But, you know, it's kind of like in radio. You got to, if you don't have good audio from the get-go, then you don't really have good stuff to work with. So it's <laughs> like, if you don't flavor your beans, you know, from the get-go, if you're not cooking them whole with with garlic, then when you refry them, they're just, they're not going to have that same taste. So Garlic. Garlic. Garlic is, uh, you know, we say the secret, but, you know, she'll never tell you how much she puts in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, we're not posting a recipe. <laughs> no. This, uh, okay. This won't be in the recipe segment, no. <laughs> thank you so much, Obed, for sharing this experience with us. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ryan. It's a pleasure to tell my dad's story, um, not as a warning, but as a, you know, just these are real people. These are the lives that are affected. Um a reality check. Reality check. Yeah, exactly. Obed Manuel is an audience editor here at CPR News. He wrote about the loss of his father, Jose, in the Texas Observer, a piece titled On the Coronavirus, Loss, and My Mom's Tacos. I've tweeted a link at CPR Warner, and it'll be on today's podcast page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Fall arrived today, but fall weather, well, it's been a little harder to come by. Highs on the front range will be in the 80s today, same for Grand Junction and Pueblo. So when will temperatures make you crave apple cider or a pumpkin spice latte? And what might we expect this winter? Paul Schlotter is with the National Weather Service. And Paul, welcome back to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. How would you describe the weather we've had this September? Well, it's been on par with previous September's. Uh, the summer was on par with previous summers. Extremely warm, well above normal. Um, you know, getting into record territory. Uh, just through September, through September twenty second, we've had fifty nine days in the city of Denver where the high temperature was at or above ninety degrees. So, um, just just really warm. 
And you say that this is uh, similar to what we've seen in the past few years. I do think of the snow that we had last September, though. That seemed exceptional. That's correct. That was exceptional. Um, and, and even in a warming climate, that doesn't mean that we can't get extreme cold events that periodically crop up from time to time. The intensity is just going to be a little less on the cold end of things, and they'll, they'll happen a little less frequently. Paul Schlatter, tell us about this moment in the context of climate change. Well, just let these statistics sink in for a little bit. The warmest seven years globally have occurred in the last seven years. So, you know, since 1850, when temperature records became a thing globally, the warmest seven years in that entire record have all occurred in the last seven years. July 2021 was the hottest month globally, period. Any month, any year across the world. And then locally here, I mean, it's a global thing. It's also a local thing. Here in Denver, just taking the Denver record, 2020 was the second hottest summer ever. And this summer, 2021, was the third hottest summer ever. And that dates back to 1872. Hmm. Um, so this, this, this is just the, this is the climate we're in right now. Are you worried about the snowpack in the mountains? That's always a concern every year because we depend on water so much. Um, but at this point, um, we don't, snowpack doesn't really get going until mid to late October. And even then we can make up for a bad October in terms of snowpack. Um, most of the snow falls between September, uh, into mid April. So, that's when we really watch it closely. And right now the indicators are uh, for an average winter in terms of snowpack. Uh, we can't say either way if it's above or below average, but uh, we are thinking because it will be a La Nina that maybe an average uh, snowpack it can be expected. An average snowpack and uh, unpack La Nina for us. La Nina is a, a, a global weather pattern that originates in the Pacific, the Pacific Ocean is a little bit cooler in, on the eastern side, um, and that drives weather patterns, um, believe it or not, all the way up here across North America. So just because the Pacific is, is much colder than normal in a certain spot, it, it changes the weather in our area. And for Colorado, it's hit or miss in terms of what La, La Nina means for our winter. Typically, though, we get a lot of events that are, are quick-moving um, coming from the northwest, which is typically not doesn't have the highest moisture content, but there are a lot of those storms, and that favors uh, the high mountains and, and the west slope for snowfall. But those events uh, can be can be short lived, moving quickly, and so it's kind of a hit or miss scenario where if you get a few really big events in a La Nina winter, that can make your winter, that can make an average snowpack. If those events don't materialize as much, you can be a little drier than normal. So. It's it's hit or miss. We, we're not really sure with La Nina, but it, it, it's basically, it, it drives the weather in Colorado for the winter. Okay, so I, I think I hear you saying that we are not going to see an abundance of snow, but about an average amount. Do you think that's true? Yes, it's more likely to be average than above average in a La, La Nina winter. Yes. Okay. Your office at the National Weather Service recently tweeted that the best fall colors follow a wet growing season, which we had last spring. And it it got me wondering, could climate change accentuate fall colors? It may accentuate fall colors um, to a point where they're they're changing a little bit later in time. 
But the problem is, if you extend the growing season, if you extend those warm temperatures, you know, into late September, into October, like we're seeing over the last uh, couple of decades, that can cause problems because the further into September and October you get, the greater the chance for a really cold storm or a cold front is to sweep across the state of Colorado. Because, I mean, even in climate change, we're going to get strong cold fronts. And so what can happen is, the trees are loving it. They're loving the warm, you know, warm, uh, sunny days. Cold front hits, drops the temperatures into the teens um, in a lot of the places, shocks the trees, fall color gone, trees go into shock, drop the leaves. The later the growing season is extended, the more chance there is to have that really killing freeze uh, that really destroys the fall colors in, you know, in a heartbeat like that okay. uh, when it occurs. Not cut and dried. Thank you so much, Paul, for being with us. Sure. Paul Schlotter, Science and Operations Officer with the National Weather Service in Boulder. Speaking of fall colors on this first day of fall, it's aspen trees that usually get all the golden glory. But one rider wants us to tear our attention away from those bright, shiny objects and appreciate another hue and tree. Pat Woodard writes about the unappreciated gamble oak in this month's Encompass magazine. Pat, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks, Ryan. My pleasure. You are championing an underdog here, the gamble oak, also known as, I'll have you say it. Yeah, the scrub oak. I mean, <laughs> is there anything more demeaning than being called a scrub oak? That's pretty lowly. I, I kind of think of the gamble oak as the Rodney Dangerfield of Colorado trees. <laughs> they, they just get no respect. Um, but at times, they, they actually deserve it. And you can actually find some New England-style fall colors here in Colorado if you Know where to look, and if you kind of get lucky. Just in case we have younger listeners who don't get the Rodney Dangerfield reference, comedian who used to say, I get no respect. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, so uh, I also think of TLC famously singing about no scrubs, but uh, we want scrub oak. Uh, tell us about what appeals to you about gamble oak, its other name. Well, of course, it's it's an important species for wildlife because it does have acorns that uh, that, that animals live on. It also uh, uh, provides important cover uh, for animals that might be trying to get away from prey. And as far as fall colors go, you know, I got the idea for this story from climbing a mountain. My daughter and I had hiked to the top of West Spanish Peak down in southern Colorado near La Vida and Trinidad and Walsenburg, almost but not quite a 14er. Yeah. From the top, as we looked out, we could see all these patches of color thousands of feet below, and reds in particular. I knew it wasn't from the aspens, and it turned out that these were groves of gamble oak trees or scrub oak. And I, I realized that we, we do kind of consider aspen trees the, the glamour calendar models of Colorado. <laughs> it's hard to find a, a magazine or a social media post this time of year that doesn't include mountainsides filled with glorious images of aspen trees, and I, I love them as much as anyone else, but I'm always looking for something that may not be as obvious, and if, if something is described as not obvious, that ab absolutely fits the gamble oak trees. Well, I am just appreciating, marveling at the photo that accompanies your piece in Encompass magazine, and it's it's not as if gamble oak is subtle. I mean, these photo these photos show just bursts of bright color. Where else might we see gamble oak changing colors? Well, the the pictures that I took were down in the Levita area, 
Um, but I've also seen them as close to Denver as uh, Castlewood Canyon State Park and Lincoln Mountain Open Space Park, which is near Monument. One of the actual best places to see this, um, uh, and I've seen it a number of times before, is in southwestern Colorado. When you take the drive to Telluride and you're driving that stretch of highway that goes between Ridgeway and Placerville, and you're overlooking the Ralph Lauren Ranch. Uh, it's a very famous overlook with the um, San Juan Mountains in the background, and you do see a lot of aspen trees in that particular vista as well, but if you look a little below the aspen trees, you'll see hillsides that are just covered with gamble oak, and if you have the right weather conditions and they're at the right elevation and the right amount of moisture and everything else that plays into this, you can get an incredible burst of, of scarlet and vermilion and even even purple on these hillsides as well from these underappreciated trees. Uh, thank you for using vermilion on the radio. I love hearing that <laughs> color. Now, are are they trees or are they bushes? Because they're called gamble oak, but they're not quite tall, you know. No, uh, you can see them as low as basically head high on a person who's six feet tall, and they do look more like uh, a clump of bushes, but I, I know that uh, biologically and botanically they are considered a tree, but mm. we, not a tree in the way that we would think of them, and certainly not in the way we would think of an oak tree that we see in other parts of the country with, you know, a, a trunk that can be, you know, five and six feet in diameter. A lot of these are are really just a, a few inches in diameter, but if you get them growing in, in large enough groves, you can get uh, really a, a pretty impressive swath of color that moves across a mountainside. I am assuming that if you go looking for aspen, you're not likely to also see the gamble oak in the same spots. We're talking about different elevations for the most part. Yeah, really, there's kind of a sweet spot for uh, gamble oak, you know, basically in the six to, to 8,000 foot elevation area. Once you get above that, they pretty much die out and you're you're into um, aspen trees and pine forests as well. So you see a lot of this in either foothills area or kind of in that area that's not really quite the foothills, but not quite the mountains. Um, and, and a good stretch uh, that I saw is when you drive on, on State Highway 83 and you get south of, let's say, Parker um, between Parker and Monument. There are several areas along there mm. which are primarily prairie, but they do have stands of gamble oak uh, that, that can turn quite colorful at this time of year. Now, when you are out appreciating scrub oak, gamble oak, are there others who are also leaf peeping in this way? Or are you, are you is? <laughs> I don't think I'm it, but I think it's, uh, it's, it's something that if people find it, a lot of times it's by accident. Uh, they may be going out on their way to drive to a particularly famous aspen grove or a stand or something like that, and they happen to drive by on their way and see these gamble oak, these scrub oak changing color, and suddenly it's like, wow, I think we better stop and take a picture of this. I wasn't expecting this. And for a lot of people, uh, and me included, it's a way to say to, to friends in the Midwest who may come back and say, yeah, you've got the aspen trees and they're pretty, but you know that's just one color. It's basically variations of the same gold color. And this is uh, my way of saying, well, not quite. We've actually got a lot more color here than you might think. And the media relentlessly covers 
the changing aspen trees. Uh, You write in this piece that it's a good idea perhaps to call local shops in the area of Gamble Oak or even check with Forest Service Rangers on whether the Gamble Oak is changing It's if it's peaking. Uh, So a little advice there. Pat, thank you so much for sharing what you call Colorado's other fall colors with us. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me very much. Pat Woodard wrote about those other fall colors for Encompass magazine. And that is Colorado Matters today, with thanks to a team that has no scrubs. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Thank you for spending time with us.